So we are working the second week looking at the work of Jesus, literally what Jesus came to do here on earth. And uh, the work of Jesus, like we said last week, it's been summarized into three different roles that were amongst God's people, so prophet, priest, and king. Last week we looked at Jesus as prophet from Mark chapter 1. This is not a diminishing of Jesus being fully God as some other religious mindsets would have it. Um, We are looking at Jesus fulfilling the role of prophet within God's people. He was literally the message that he sent to this world of his kindness and his grace and his mercy towards us. This week, we're going to look at Jesus as king from Matthew chapter 2. So we're going to look at Jesus as priest. We kind of skipped over one, all right? We're coming to that one on uh, Christmas Day. That'll be on the recording online, so make sure you tune in for that. But um, as most of you know, we live in America, so we don't have a king, right? So we don't have this experience of living within some type of monarchy. It's literally the reason our country exists is for the very opposite of that, so that we don't have to experience that. Lots of sacrifices and lives have been laid down for that very particular purpose. But while we've never lived under a monarchy, the concept is not one that's foreign to us, right? We, many of us, most of us, have actually fascinated, are fascinated by this whole idea of a king or a monarchy, like we literally fascinate over the idea of royalty, all right? So let me just kind of try to prove my point to you, and then I'll try to get your approval if I've actually done so, all right? So here's, here's kind of my, my pitch for this, all right? So the first one is we grew up hearing stories of royalty, right? I mean, this is the whole purpose of Disney, <laughs> right? Every movie that Disney practically comes out with is something about royalty, right? You have Cinderella and Robin Hood and Sword in the Stone. Those are like movies that I remember growing up, Frozen, that continue this thing going on. If you go to the theme parks, what's smack dab in the middle of their theme park? A freaking castle, right? Like, this is like, Disney's made so much money off of us when it comes to our fascination with royalty. It doesn't stop there, though. You have like C.S. Lewis and all of his Narnia books that most of us have probably read or at least watched some of the movies. You have Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. So we grow up on stories of royalty, okay? It doesn't stop there, all right? Keep going. I did my research, and we follow story, stories of royalty, all right? So here's my research. About... 30 million Americans watched the most recent royal wedding of Meghan and Harry. Harry thank you. Yeah, those two. Um, 30 million. Like, they had, you had to wake up early. It was like 5 o'clock in the morning, and 30 million Americans woke up to watch that stupid wedding. Um, then you had, uh, if you think about even The Crown on Netflix, right? The audience demand for The Crown on Netflix is almost 28% higher than the average TV series. 28%. That's wild. All right. Then you actually have Harry and Meghan Markle. They came out with their own documentary series and has earned 81.5 million viewing hours already. In America. Like, they have nothing to do with, well, I guess they're here now, but whatever. So... That's my research, probably the most useless research that I've ever done for a sermon, but it's helping me prove a point, all right? Thirdly, we create our own royal families here in America. Because we have a lack of a monarchy, we create our own 
kings and queens and families of royalty here. CNN actually made a list in 2021. So here's a few of them that they dived into. You have the Kennedys, right? The Kennedys we make into this royal family. You look at the family lineage that's happened within the Kennedys. We have our own documentaries that we've done about this particular family. Even look at the popularity of even Jackie O and all the fashion trends that she started here in our country. Just lots of popularity, right? We try to put them up on a pedestal and they are a royal family for us. You have the Obamas. I don't care what side you're on, their influence and popularity touched literally every corner of our country. I mean, Michelle Obama gets on Jimmy Fallon and has a dance that she does with the guy, right? Like, that's the peak. Um, and then you have even like the Reagans, which was a Hollywood story that actually came to Washington in the Oval Office. Like, you have all these stories. Like, we're trying to, because of the void that we have here, we try to place these families that are royal families to us, even though we don't submit to any king here. All right, have I done it? Have I convinced you? All right. Though we don't have any royalty officially, we are fascinated with the idea of royalty. All right? So here's the conclusion. All right? Deep down, we long for a king. We long for a king, right? I mean, we fantasize about it because we as human beings are built for a king. Now here's the problem. None of us are fit to rule. None of us are fit to rule, right? Sin runs too deep in all of us, right? We try to come up with a solution like democracy, but democracy is only a medicine and you can't live off of medicine, right? And we need a king who is fit to rule. Now here's the hope of Christmas, that the one who has come is the one who's finally fit to rule. That's the hope of Christmas for us. I mean, we just sang about it in a song, Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. What? Let earth receive her king. The one who fears God. The one who upholds justice. The one who displays wisdom. The one who exercises self-control. Man, do we need that in our leadership here in our country? Amen? the one who practices perfect obedience to the commands of God. This king has come. That's the hope of Christmas. And we're looking at a passage this evening that identifies Jesus as that king. So we're looking at Matthew chapter two. This is the story that every one of us have grown up hearing during the Christmas season, the visit of the Magi. And in this story, we learn what kind of king Jesus is, all right? So we learned three things. Jesus is the king for all. Jesus is the king of all. And then Jesus is the king worthy of all. So we're going to work through this story progressively. We're going to identify these three different aspects of Jesus as king. And then I'm going to work to try to bring them all together at the end for us. All right. So we're just going to work thematically through this whole entire passage. So um, we see Jesus is the king for all in verses one through nine. So I'm just gonna read this part of the story. We'll stop, we'll dissect it for a little bit, and then we'll continue to move through the story. So here's what verses one through nine have to say. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. So literally, that's the only line that we get from these wise men throughout the whole story. Continues, verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, remember that, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. And here's the passage that we just worked through in our call to worship. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah because of you... Because, because out of you... Sorry, if I can read. Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them to exact the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I can too go and worship him, which we know is a lie here in a little while. In verse 9, After hearing the king, they went on their way. All right, so first we see that Jesus is the long foretold king of Israel here, right? So the wise men, they follow the star. Where does that lead them? It leads them to Jerusalem. And so they ask the reigning king, Herod, where the newborn king of the Jews is at. King Herod hears this. We get a response from him. King Herod assembles the priests and the scribes to search where the promised king is to be born. So they go to the Bible. They search the Bible to try to figure out where this promised king is to be born. They find the answer in Micah 5.2, which we read at the very beginning. And then what's the response of all of this, right? What's the response that we get from King Herod and those around him? Well, Herod and the priests and the scribes are deeply disturbed, There's anxiety and angst over this. And then they send the wise men on on this reconnaissance tour in order to kill the child, which we know from verses 16 through 18 at the end of this chapter, because after the wise men take an alternate route and they leave and they don't return to Herod, Herod is angry, literally like fire burning in his bones over this whole fact, and he orders that there would be an edict that is decreed to kill any boy to and under in and around Bethlehem. This is why we know it's a reconnaissance tour in order to kill baby Jesus. He doesn't want to go worship. He wants to go kill. That's what's in his heart. And so look, the conclusion is that the response isn't elation as it should be. Amongst God's people, his leadership The prophets, the priests that are there amongst God's people, the response isn't elation. He's finally come. It's agitation. Herod is more worried about his own throne than the promise and the fulfillment of that promise and the coming of the Messiah. And the only ones who go to pay Jesus genuine homage are these wise men. So we have to ask, who are they, right? So it's not the king of Israel is not the priests of Israel. It's not these leaders that are amongst God's people who are waiting and anticipating and desire to see this final Messiah come into this world. It's the wise men. Who are they? Well, the wise men were likely from Persia or Babylon. So they are these Gentiles. They're not Israelites. So they are ethnically different than God's people. 
They are considered wise men by the world standards because they study stars, right? So they literally watch the stars, they watch their movements, and then they also try to extract messages based off of the movements of the stars in order for them to draw answers and meaning and purpose to the questions that we have in this life. I mean, it's essentially like today's new ageism, right? Like there's the study of astrology, there's psychics that are involved in all that's going on. These are the wise men of the world. So all of this makes them idolaters because they look to creation for answers and meaning rather than turning to the God of the universe. So think about this. The wise men are outsiders racially, and then they're also outsiders moralistically. Yet they are the ones who come and recognize Jesus as king. So what does this mean? It means that Jesus is the king for all. It means Jesus is the king for all. The work of King Jesus is gathering outsiders and restoring them back to God. That's the work of the king that Jesus is that came into this world. Jesus restores the worst of us back to God, and then he also restores the nations back to God himself. No matter where you are, or like what has happened in your life, what you have regret over, nor what you have done, like where you're from, what you've done in this life, the things of your past, or even the color of your skin has separated you too far from the reconciling work of King Jesus. That's the good news of this king that has come into this world, right? Like Jesus is the king for all. It doesn't matter who you are. He's come and he's offered this invitation through Jesus. This God of the universe has offered us an invitation in Jesus to come back to himself. He's gathering a people for himself because Jesus is the king for all people. That's the first thing that we see in this passage. Now, honestly, like we could end right there, right? Like what good news Like, it doesn't matter what I've done in my life. There's still opportunity by trusting in Jesus to be brought back to God. I can be from any ethnic group, and I I come and submit myself to this King Jesus, and I'm brought in, and I'm made part of God's family. I'm part of this, this kingdom that he's creating in this world. Like, this is great news for us. Like, we'd stop there, and it's like, my heart's full. I can, I can leave. But look, Jesus is so good that it doesn't stop there. Like the the story keeps going and there's more aspects to who this King Jesus is, which is incredible. So in verses 9 through 10, we see that Jesus is king not only for all, but he's king of all. All right, we see this in verses 9 and 10. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. So check this out. Not only do those far off from God come to recognize Jesus as king in this story, where we recognize Jesus as the king for all, but creation itself recognizes Jesus as king. The star knows whose its ruler is. Psalm 147.4 says this, he, speaking of Jesus, determines the number of the stars and he gives to all of them their names. So the star, look at God's command, leads others to its true king. 
And so look, because of all this, we see that Jesus is king not only for all, he's king of all, including creation itself. And this is just the first example we get of creation obeying and submitting to Jesus as king throughout his life and ministry, right? I mean, you know the stories of Jesus, like we've sat under these. Even if you haven't been in the church, you've heard some of these whispers of who Jesus is and what he's done. Drink obeyed Jesus when he turned water into wine. Food obeyed Jesus as he took a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread and fed thousands with leftovers after he was done. Fish obeyed Jesus as he directed them into the nets of the fishermen who spent a whole night. This was their trade, and they didn't catch a single thing. And then at the word of Jesus, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. The nets are full. You have the sea who obeys Jesus as he walks on water to his disciples. You have the storms that obey Jesus as they submit to his voice. Humanity is not the only one that needs to be restored to God. Creation itself also needs restoration. And it knows who its king is. It knows who to look to. And it's this Jesus that has entered into the world. He's not only the king for all, he's also the king of all. Creation itself obeys this King Jesus. And so look, who else to restore but King Jesus? We see this in Revelation 21.5. Not only do we get to see that in his life and ministry that the, the whole earth obeys him, but we actually get to see a foretaste of looking into the future of what's going to actually happen at Jesus' second coming in Revelation 21.5. And it says, And he who was seated on the throne, this is Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Literally, Romans chapter 8 says that this whole creation is just groaning deep in its own soul for this Jesus to come back, waiting for the resurrection to happen, for us to be fully restored in our resurrected bodies. Because as it knows when we are fully restored in our resurrected bodies, it too will be restored. Our, our sin didn't just affect us. It actually created, it, it infected this world that we live in. That's Genesis 3, the, the ground was cursed. And the whole creation is just waiting for this Jesus, this King Jesus, this one that it submits to, to finally come back so that its decay will be done away with. So look, just imagine this, Right? A humanity that is united back to its creator God, living in a restored world. All because this baby Jesus is king. This is the work that the king is doing. He's uniting the nations back to himself. And then he's also going to bring and make this creation new again getting rid of all the decay, all the brokenness, all the things that are falling apart will finally be made new again. That's the work of this great king. So look, the conclusion that we should have is there's no one like this Jesus. There's none like him. There's nobody like this Jesus that has ever grazed planet earth like him. And because there is none like King Jesus, we should acknowledge that he is also, Jesus is the king worthy of all. We see this in verses 11 through 12. 
Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. So in these verses, we see that Jesus, as king, receives his appropriate response, which is worship. These wise men fall to their knees and they worship Jesus as king. The earthly renowned bow to heaven's renowned. They bring to him their treasures in gold and frankincense and myrrh. They submit to him their devotion. They follow God's direction, not Herod's, and they take another route. So look, the wise men's response, if we were to like ask ourselves, like, okay, what do we do with this Jesus as king? The wise men, they're a living illustration. They're a living example. How do we respond to this King Jesus? We respond in the same way that these wise men responded to Jesus. We worship him and we submit to him. With Jesus being our king, we come and we lay everything down at his feet. That's our response to this Jesus, this great King Jesus, who's king for all, including every single person that is sitting in a seat here tonight, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no no matter what you are coming from, even as you walked into this room, as many of us, the car ride over can be filled with like frustrations. There can be embitterment that's going on in our soul. There's hardships that have happened through our week. Like King Jesus is here for you. He's the king of all, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all the things that we give our imagination to. This is King Jesus, this whole world being restored and knowing exactly what it would feel like to live in a place with no more brokenness. He's the one that actually brings it into existence. And because of this, Jesus deserves our worship. He's worthy of all. And the king for all and of all, who is worthy of our all, He came and he demonstrated that he is the one that is rightly to rule over all because he emptied himself for all. That's a lot of alls. Mm -hmm. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11 gives us this picture. This Jesus who is fully God. Did not hold his power and authority over our heads, but he actually used it to serve us. That's who this Jesus, this king is he emptied himself and then he assumed the form of a servant like us. He took on the human body, human flesh, the incarnation of Christmas is what is actually being pictured here in Philippians chapter two. He humbled himself through obedience to the point of death, death even on a cross in your place, in my place. This is what our King Jesus did. And because he did this, the Philippians chapter 2 says, for this reason, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every other name, and that every knee will bow down to this Jesus, and every tongue will confess this Jesus as King and Lord. That's what has happened in human history. This isn't just a myth that's been made up that has just persisted on that has brought us into this room. This is the king that entered into human history who laid his life down for you, did not use his power, did not use his divinity, did not use his authority for himself to exploit us, but actually serve you. And so our proper response 
is to submit ourselves to this Jesus and to worship him just like the wise men did. So here's what I think this looks like, all right? Trying to draw from scripture itself, all right? The first one is that you make Jesus your center, all right? You give him your allegiance, all right? So if you could imagine life as a circle, our, our tendency is to place us at the center of that circle, right? And so everything about our life is to revolve around us, right? This is our tendency. We are the ones that have set up our own kingdoms and our own queendoms, and our allegiance and devotion is to our own self, and life is all about building what we want to extract out of this world and everybody's to bend their knee to us, and this is what our tendency is. But look, when we come to view of who this Jesus is, this king for all, of all, who's worthy of all, the proper response is to come and submit ourselves to him, to make Jesus take ourself out of that center and to replace the center with Jesus himself. And so Jesus, he becomes the middle of our circle. Everything in our life is to begin to revolve around who this Jesus is. Our allegiance and our devotion shift from ourself to this Jesus. And life is no longer about our kingdom, but his kingdom. Jesus becomes our center. But beyond that, we also die to self, right? We give him our actions. Not only does he get our heart, but he also gets our thoughts and he also gets our actions, the things that we do with our hands. That's what happens when we come and we submit and worship to this Jesus. Not only do we um, not, not, we no longer live by our laws, which are our preferences or our prejudices, but we actually live by the commands of Jesus, when we give him our actions, when we die to ourselves, this is what it looks like. We, we are giving him everything. We submit ourselves to what he has called us to do. Philippians actually gives us a great mental picture of this. In Christ, we are now citizens of what? Citizens of heaven, right? And so selfish ambition, according to Philippians chapter 2, is no long, it's not what navigates our lives, but it's humility, Right? We consider others more important than ourselves. We no longer look to our own interests, but we actually look to the interests of others. And so, like, if I could give you an example of what all this looks like, where we make Jesus our center and we die to self. Um, I, I was actually in a conversation within, like, the last couple of weeks with someone, and they were sharing with me a conversation that they are having with this friend and they're talking about a relationship that they're in. And they just don't know about the, the movement trajectory forward in this relationship. And uh, this is really like a steep one, all right? But he says this, I'm, I'm not sure she fills my needs. Now, that hits probably a lot of us like, oh, that's like brutal. But if you're really honest, when you're at the center and everything revolves around you, that sounds really brutal, but we do the same thing even if we want to soften the blow. Here's what he did in just that one sentence. Not sure she fills my needs. He's at the center, right? Life revolves around him, including those that are closest to him, even in his relationships. The whole purpose of their relationship to him is that they bow and submit the need to him, his needs, his wants, his desires. And then the question is what do you do for me? 
So you die to me, I don't die to you. You see that? Now here's what happens when we come to Jesus. When Jesus becomes our center, when we balance submit our knee to Jesus as king, Jesus is now at the center, and so everything in our world revolves around him. So our question is not, what do you do for me? Now the question is, what can I do for you? You don't die for me, I lay down my life for you. You see that? That's what it looks like to submit to King Jesus. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus and to follow his commands. That's what it looks like to be his followers in this world, that when we look at Jesus and all of his commands, we don't look at it as something that he's calling us in order for us to extract joy out of this life. He's given us these commands in order to fill joy in our life. When we die to sin, we're not saying bye to our happiness. We're saying hello to the greatness of the life that God has given us in Christ Jesus. And so look, submitting to the rule of Jesus is a once-for-all time decision, yet it's, full, it's a full life's work. All right, let me unpack that for you for a second. Here's what I mean. When we trust in Christ, when we submit to Christ, God's the one that keeps you. It's a once-for-all-time decision, right? So this is what we call justification, right? There's no falling in and out of salvation when you come and declare Jesus as king of your life. You come and you lay down and you submit your life to him. And because salvation is dependent upon Christ's merits and not yours, you can't earn your way into salvation, and that also means you can't earn your way out of it either. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a once for all time decision that you come and you give yourself to Jesus. So God saves you and then look, he also will keep you. Secondly, it's a full life's work. Learning to live to under the rule of King Jesus is not a one-time decision. It's a full lifetime's work, Right? Making Jesus your center and dying to yourself, it's hard and it's rigorous work because we're trying to learn what it's like to die to our former life and live into this new life while there's still waging war that's taking place inside of you. We do not, when we come and accept Jesus, he doesn't just extract us out of the brokenness of this world. He actually calls us to live in this world and learn what it's like to live under his rule in the midst of it. So it's a full life's work. You feel this waging of war inside of you between the old and the new. And what we're working steadily to do is what we call sanctification, putting our old self to death and then living into this new life that only Christ can give us. And there's a, a pastor, uh, or I don't know if he's a pastor, at least he's an author because I got this from a book. Um, so his name is George McDonald, and here's how he kind of puts this, this lifetime work, this disruptive work that ultimately results in our good. Here's what he says. It should be on the screen. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these, those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised by them. But presently, he starts knocking down the house uh, about in a way that hurts ab abominably. I can't say that word well, so bear with me. And does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to, right? 
You've probably felt this. If you've walked with Jesus over a course of time, you're like, what in the world are you doing in my life, Jesus? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here and putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's the work that God is doing in your life as king. Oftentimes it's hard, it's challenging, it's difficult work because what he is doing is not what we particularly, maybe you thought we were signing up for, but it's better. It's what's best for us. That Jesus in his kindness and his grace come and sets up his residence in you. How do we get this? We submit to Jesus as king. We worship Jesus as our ultimate king. We make the once for all time decision to trust and follow Christ. Maybe you're coming in here and you're like, I've never made that decision before. I've dabbled with Jesus. I've heard about Jesus. I've even been in church for a while, but I've never submitted myself to this king Jesus. Look, he's for you. He's your king. He is a king for you. He's the one that is over all creation. At some point, your knee will bow. You have the opportunity to bow here in this life and you get eternity with Jesus. Or when he comes back again, your knee is going to bow, but you will not get to be with him for eternity. So make the decision now. This once for all time decision to submit to this Jesus as king. He's good. He's the one that we've been waiting for. Then for others of us, it's making submission to Christ our life's work. That we are regularly coming back to the submission to King Jesus. We are no longer at the center. Our center has been, we've been removed from the center. Jesus has been placed at the center. And our life's work is no longer what can you do for me, but what can I do for you? Because it's the model that Jesus exemplified for us as we work through in Philippians chapter 2. This Jesus, who is worthy of all, emptying himself of all for you. So look, Jesus is the king for all. Jesus is the king of all. Jesus is the king worthy of all. May we be a people that submit to him. Enjoy Jesus as king. We get to enjoy it now, friends. It's not something we're just looking at towards the future. We get to enjoy this good life with Jesus and his people here and now. May we be a people that submit. Let's pray.